Hey folks, you're listening to How to Win a Campaign, where you'll get an insider's perspective that teaches you not only how to win campaigns, but also how to build movements. I'm Martin Diego Garcia. And I'm Joe Fold. And you can find us at the Campaign Workshop on Instagram or on threads. Welcome and thanks for listening to this episode of season four on How to Win a Campaign. And on the last episode, we talked to Maria Urbina, who was talking about movement building through traditional media. And so if you haven't listened to that, it's a really great episode. So be sure to go check it out. And we have a great episode today. We're going to be discussing movement building through storytelling with advice on how to effectively use stories. Joe, can you talk a little bit about what storytelling is? I mean, it's one of our favorite topics, but give a definition for our listeners. So... We are wired for stories. Our brains are wired for stories. It is really important to be able to put that personal connection and touch to what is going on. So when I think of storytelling, I think of a personal account or an anecdote that relates to a cause or a movement. The act of storytelling and understanding the stories that you are telling as part of your advocacy, right, is really what helps bring the movement to life. It allows you to really paint a picture for your audience and take it out of the abstract to show how it's really affecting the community you're supporting, the community that they're living in, and why it's important to their day-to-day lives. It can be a really, really powerful tool if done right. And it's something that we at the Campaign Workshop do in all of our communications, right, and all of our training programs. And we have some a few tips and advice as you are thinking about implementing storytelling in your work. So first and foremost, Think about the emotions that you're conveying. Think about the best stories that you've heard and the emotions that they invoked out of you. That's how you want to be crafting your stories. I would love to think that us as humans are logical beings and we make all of our decisions based on the facts that are going to be the most beneficial to us. They are not, right? We make our decisions based on emotions and emotions are usually what drive us to action, right? So you really want to show that personal struggle or what is at stake for folks versus just hitting them with statistics and facts, right? When you're able to make that human connection on an emotional level and on a values level, it really allows your audience to be brought in to the issue that you're talking about. So having somebody tell their own story really provides a greater context and can be so much more impactful and powerful and connective when you are running a campaign, talking about an issue, doing your organizing and advocacy work. I think in addition to that, you you want to have some impactful visuals that go along with that. And we'll talk about that a little bit later, is how do you then marry that story with photos or video content in a way that only increases the impact that the story is making. And it's also just really important to make sure that your story has a clear message, right? You're not just telling a story for the sake of telling a really good story, but you want to make sure that it's related to the issue that you've been working on. You're going to want to edit it or rework it to ensure that that point is clear. And that's not often easy. Again, you got to find the right storyteller. They have to be telling the right story in context. They have to be willing to share their journey with an audience and getting people comfortable and making sure that they want to do that is really important. And you want to make sure you have their buy-in. You're not just like, you know, sitting them down and saying, now tell your story. You want to make sure that they are committed to doing it. And that just takes time and work. And you want to make sure that it's 
actually related to the issue you are talking about. And sometimes people have a great story, but it's not connected to what you're trying to do today. And you have to make sure there really is that connection. Joe, do you have advice on how our listeners should be thinking about organizationally setting up this infrastructure to be finding stories, collecting stories, utilizing stories in their work? Well, so... Now that we're back and we have left our like houses and we're actually communicating and seeing each other in person, use those events, use that interaction as a way to connect with people and ask them why, ask people why they're at an event and ask them if they're willing to share their story. Have it set up so there are collection points in person or on Zoom, but ways for you to find and recruit these storytellers on a specific issue that you care about. So use those events. Then you want to train and support storytellers. You want to make sure that if you are going to be having volunteers talking about their journey around an issue, that you're giving them some support, making sure they're bought into it, and not just like sticking a camera in their face and saying, talk, right? You have to get them bought in. You also want to train volunteers to actually find the stories. You want to train volunteers to recruit the stories. Often what happens is people like put a link on their website and they just say, we're going to get thousands of stories. It doesn't work that way. You have to do some recruitment. You may have to have volunteers at different events asking people if they tell their story and recording a story on the phone and then finding the best stories and then going back, training them a little bit more and then recording those stories again. It is a process. It's not an instantaneous thing. So the idea of investing in tools, like we like a tool called Boast, where there's a link on our website to collect stories, but there's lots of other good ones, you know, whether Soapbox or Gather Voices or plenty of storytelling tools out there, doesn't really matter which one you use, but you also need to train volunteers to utilize those tools if you're going to use one. You also want to keep track of who these storytellers are, the stories they tell, maybe having a master spreadsheet doesn't have to be very complicated, but just understanding and keeping track of this so you can go back to people again and again. Some folks are natural storytellers, but some people may need a little more help. That doesn't mean they're a bad storyteller. They just need a little more help and that's fine. And the good news is today we have a fantastic storyteller on the podcast. Casey is awesome. She is really fantastic and is a real expert storyteller. And it was a great interview. I'm excited to listen in on that one. I want us to dig in a little bit, Joe, on the difference between, right, because we talk about what is your core message for your organization or the campaign you're working for, and how does storytelling sort of fit within that context, right? The story is not your core message. The story is how you're conveying your core message to your audience. And so I want to make for the distinction there for our listeners so that they're not caught up thinking, oh, let me find the perfect story that articulates every nuance of the issue that we're working on, right? You should have a core campaign or organizational message of what you were trying to achieve. What is your North Star? What is the thing you are trying to make impact on? And then, as Joe mentioned, then you're taking the time to find stories in order to illustrate how that's impacting the community you're working with, how that's impacting your constituents' day-to-day lives, right? How this is a bigger, broader issue that is impacting more folks in a broader audience that should be concerned about this issue. Absolutely. Well, let's go to the interview and then we'll talk after the break. 
Super excited to hear from Casey Donahue, who's going to talk more about this after the break. So stay tuned. Casey Donahue founded Say It Like You and the Story Workers to consult on communications and storytelling across sectors. Casey is a lead instructor at The Moth, a nonprofit group based in New York City, dedicated to the art and craft of storytelling. She has been working with The Moth for over 10 years. Casey believes that storytelling can help us communicate better and connect with others. Casey, welcome to the show. Hi, Joe. It's so lovely to be here with you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. All right. So first, tell us how you got into storytelling. Uh, There's so many answers to this question. I think I'll focus on two. One really formative moment in my life that happened right after college. I moved home to help care for my grandmother, who was in the last stages of Alzheimer's. And the day that she passed, there's a knock on the door and this lovely older woman introduced herself. She was a minister at my mother's grandmother's church. I'd never met her. And she sat at our kitchen table and she asked for stories about my grandma. And it was such a a beautiful and helpful moment and part of my grief process. And it was such a delightful surprise. And I remember thinking like, oh my gosh, this is a job just to witness people's lives and their experiences. That's wild. That was one moment for me that definitely led me to toward the career questions that I'm still holding. And then around the same time, I came across an essay. It was actually a speech by Ursula K. Le Guin, who is one of my favorite storytellers of all time, speaking of stories. She's giving a commencement address to the Bryn Mawr graduating class of like 1986. So I will say the the gender dynamics there might be a little dated, but it's a beautiful offering about what she calls the difference between father tongue and mother tongue. Father tongue being essentially any language that that claims to be objective, objectivity, the language of law and science, right? The language of Kant and Hegel and Darwin and Marx. And she doesn't knock it, but she does knock the idea that in our culture, somehow that language has begun to masquerade as the only truth, the only true thing. Whereas the mother tongue, as she calls it, um, I remember in one sentence, she said, it's a language like constantly on the edge of silence and it's constantly on the verge of song and it's the language that stories are told in and it's just a beautiful reflection and meditation on language and power and how we connect to one another how we move each other and kind of how what we need in order to kind of make it (laughs) as a species really at this point so that was really motivating for me too the idea that a subjective experience language is a truth that we got to get back to somehow Yeah, well, that's a perfect segue to the next question, which is talking about storytelling as a tool for movement building. Um, Why is storytelling so powerful? Oh, that is a really lovely segue, um, because in the same essay, Ursula talks about this. For me, one of the reasons that storytelling is so important in movement work, in organizing work, there are so many reasons. One of them is because unlike data, argument, assertion. Stories don't position themselves as something to be argued with. Stories are offerings, right? So when you hear from someone, there's really no way to just knock out their experience as false. Um, Stories demand a certain witnessing. And I think it allows people to move toward each other. 
because the, even the act of listening to a story and listening to somebody else be vulnerable can really transform the stances that we're taking. So I think as a technology for listening, as well as for information sharing, I think it was Jerome Bruner, he's a psychologist, psychiatrist, perhaps. Oh, I forget the exact stat, and I don't want to misquote it. But the neuroscience will say that we are so much more likely to remember a fact if it's couched in a story. And I think that's because we're emotional beings, you know, we're geared to relate to one another. And so it's a lot, what's so lovely about storytelling, particularly in spaces where we are trying to move people, convince people, organize people toward a certain outcome, is it really kind of calls us into connection in a way that argument never can. So I think that's one reason it's important. The other thing I find in movement spaces and campaign spaces also, we're also any organization, particularly nonprofit organizations, I find myself working um, in a lot of organizational spaces like this, I have found that storytelling, while an amazing toolkit for the actual comms work you might be doing or the campaign work you might be doing, is also an amazing way to combat burnout. Because when we have a chance to actually speak from our experience, story our experience and listen to other people storying their own experience, I'm talking particularly in a workshop space, but when we're offered that space to listen without having to respond and to share without having to be interrupted. When that space is held, something moves. We kind of get more familiar with what brought us there in the first place. There's, there's like a levity that occurs and a connection that occurs. So I actually think that's another reason storytelling is important, not just as a communication tool and tactic, but as a way to rejuvenate ourselves and connect with each other in a less formal way. As a teacher in the space and mm-hmm. someone who has taught storytelling and has taught me storytelling, <laughs> yeah, how do you start? Talk about like from the beginning, if somebody is beginning this and trying in a movement space to tell their story or get yes. others to tell their stories, where do they begin? Yeah, great question. There's a couple ways to approach this question. One of the first ways I like to position this conversation, how do we start? is by reminding folks that it's not that we all have one story. I hear that a lot because of the work I do. Oh, you know, I can't wait to tell my story. We all have countless experiences in our lives. And those experiences are countless stories, depending on how we're framing them and how we're structuring them. This is very much, there's no such thing as a single story, but that is where I like to start. There's no such thing as a single story. I think sometimes folks come into movement work, particularly folks with personal experience and systems they're trying to disrupt where it can feel all of the pressure in the world to kind of communicate your whole life experience in one go. It's just not setting us up for success. So I like to remind folks that storytelling isn't a craft, right? It's an art form that we practice. And there are tiny moments in our lives and big moments in our lives that we can choose to story in a variety of ways. But there's no one story that you're working on here. So kind of let yourself off the hook on that. So so I like to make sure we, we approach the work in a way that's digestible and playful, right? Playful and gentle And that's one place that I think is important. Another place I think is important is to remember that one of the things that makes storytelling, and to define this for folks who are are just listening in, when when we're talking about storytelling, Joe, or the work we've done right together with Homes Not Borders and also through The Moth, which is an organization I've been working with for years, you know, The Moth does true stories told live, no notes. And so when we're talking about storytelling in this context, we're talking about personal stories. They're from our lives, they're true, and we are willing to make art out of them. So that's what we're talking about in, when we're talking about story in this context, or for me. And so when we start that work, how do you start? 
for me, it's really important to start small, to start with one sentence of a story seed, as I like to call it, or to try out a couple of different story seeds. And you kind of work up to the bigger one, the five minute, the 10 minute. And when we do it that way, I think the, the process can be inviting and fun and spacious as opposed to really overwhelming because it's vulnerable work. I think that's really what we want to see. Storytelling can be very vulnerable work. And um, we often will in, in workshop spaces, story experiences that are really tough, right? That people want to utilize in their advocacy work. Even when stories are very small, one of my favorite stories is a high schooler talking about one day she was brave enough to approach one other student and make a friend. It's a beautiful story and it's so vulnerable. And it's just about this one day that she chose to walk into a pizza shop. So I think coming with playfulness and care, remembering that even if it's a small story seed, it's so vulnerable to be yourself in front of others and to say something that's true and important to you. So yeah, I think that's a good place to start. Light, but also with care. Other things then, especially if you're in a movement space and you're talking about something that is somewhat difficult, mm -hmm. any words of wisdom around how do you start with that? Because some of these stories are hard to tell. They are. There can be yeah, stories that are really hard to tell that can be told well. And I hesitate there to say safely. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure stories are ever safe necessarily, but I think they can be told in a way that leaves both the teller and the listener with a sense of empowerment or catharsis and doesn't leave anybody feeling exposed, blasted open in a way that they're having trouble recovering from. I like to, in moth workshop spaces and other workshop spaces, quote Nadia Boltzweber, who's an amazing storyteller and pastor. Everyone should totally look her up. The moth uses this language a lot. I believe she's the first one who used it, but it's this idea of we tell our stories from scars, not wounds. And I love that because it's not a binary, it's a spectrum. And some stories are always going to elicit really tough stuff for us. And if we're aware of how much work we've done to emotionally process an experience before trying to story it, we're going to be in better shape. So one way I'll handle that is as soon as someone shares any level of story, whether it's a one sentence or a full draft, we'll ask, how'd that feel? You know, and we'll just check in. You know, are you in your body? Um, do you feel empowered? Do you feel exposed? Where are we on that spectrum? And it totally depends on the teller and it totally depends on the stakes of the telling. And it's always, for me, really important that it's always up to the teller, that it's, the teller is the expert here on when it's appropriate to share and how much. But we really keep that in mind. Are we in scar territory? Are we in wound territory? Where are we with this? And how do we do our best to leave our teller feeling like they're sharing medicine, not like they're sacrificing themselves on the altar of, of a movement. And so when you and I've talked about this, you talk yeah. about a story arc yeah. and sort of the beginning, middle and end of that story. Can you talk a little bit about what a typical story arc is for folks that don't know and haven't been through that process? Oh, what does totally. that look like? Oh, and you know, this is my favorite, Joe. I love talking about story arcs. There's so many ways to talk about story arcs. I've seen it taught really well. I've seen the three-act structure um, taught beautifully. I've seen an adaptation, actually, of Joseph Campbell's, which is a little more complicated, but also functions well. And by Joseph Campbell, I mean the hero's journey, a simplified arc with many chapters. Probably not worth going into here, but in certain programs at the Moth, we will teach a five-act story structure, which is my personal favorite. And regardless of how many acts you're going for here, or how meticulous you want to get with that kind of brainy process, 
I think the thing that every story arc has in common is really this idea of the word arc. The story is not flat. It curves, it moves, it's dynamic. And how do we create that? Well, we like to say the storyteller experiences a transformation, a change, or a journey of some kind. And if you can track that, if you can track the way that the story has impacted you or has transformed you or has left you slightly different than you were at the beginning, that's a good indication that you can arc it, as it were, that you can create a story that feels dynamic as a beginning, a middle, and an end. And that leads up to kind of a transformation, a pivot. In essence, you can ensure that something has happened, that something is happening. One thing that one of my favorite moth hosts, Peter Aguero, used to say a lot at Moth Slams. So those are open mics that you can go to all over the country. He says, you know, like, this is not a good story. I woke up in the morning. I felt awesome. I did a bunch of things. At the end of the day, I'm like, wow, I'm awesome. Right? <laughs> That's a flat story. <laughs> anyway, if you wake up and think you're awesome, then by the end of the day, you're like, holy smokes, I really have to deal with my daddy issues. Okay, now that's a story, right? So it's about change. It's about making sure that you're tracking how the story has impacted you so that you can create a journey and make it dynamic. What are some of those hurdles then that folks go through mm. in trying to pick the right story, especially in movements? What are things that you've seen as being a block or a, frankly, a roadblock that people yep. get into in telling the story that works for a movement? So just to give you like some of the things that we've seen for you to react to, right? Yeah. You know, trying to incorporate jargon, trying to be very much in not necessarily connecting with the audience for the movement, but being deep into your own stories. Those have been some hurdles that we've seen, but you do this a lot and I'd love to hear some of the things you've seen. I agree with that. You know, I think I struggle with it is I empathize so much with the storyteller. And I often find myself in a space where I'm feel protective of storytellers and movement spaces, right? Or want to encourage them to remember that they don't have to tell this story. I think of a lot about the way that nonprofits and other organizations with the best of intentions can feel entitled to people's personal stories when that might not be the best move for the teller and might even flatten the nuance of the issue at hand. That's a position I find myself in a lot is kind of between storyteller and movement. Here's something that happens, I think, a lot is a rigidity in both from the movement's perspective and or from the storyteller's perspective. It's this idea that this is it. This is the story we need. And when I say this is it, this is the story, that could be the entire story idea. It could also be this scene or a detail that I'm really attached to. I think that if you're going to utilize this art form well toward justice or social justice, you've got to be dynamic. For example, I have some friends who are professional storytellers who will have, say, five versions of a story in their pocket. So that depending on how they're feeling that day, depending on the audience they're working with that day, depending on the stakes of the telling and where how they are in their body, they'll pick one. They'll pick a lighter lift or a heavier lift. They'll go in really deep here or they'll have a lighter touch there. And I think emphasizing that great storytelling can be dynamic, but dynamic that that is actually what separates this art form from a written piece is that it's an exchange in the room between listener and teller. That's what makes it so incredible. Your stories change and shift and move their living, breathing pieces in my mind because they exist in that interaction in both the telling and the listening. And so I think a lot of times in movement spaces, because we have an agenda, we can get really rigid with the story. We can get really attached to a specific rendering. And I think instead we need to 
think more like inhale, exhale, let the story evolve, let the story meet a specific moment and then change tomorrow for another moment. If if that makes sense, it sounds a little abstract. If I could give like one medicine to storytelling and movement, I think it would be the medicine of that dynamic flow. Yeah. And then one of the other things you brought up that I'd like to dig into a little bit more is this idea of that telling a story is always going to be vulnerable, right? So there's always going to be that vulnerability and owning that. I think sometimes nonprofits and organizations want to make it seem that it is a safe space to tell a story when in reality, it's never going to be a hundred percent like safe to tell the story and owning that vulnerability is really important. Completely agree. You know, I'll say this a lot. I love the term brave space more than safe space because we can't make a space safe for anybody else. We don't know what you're carrying into the room. What we can do is make a space that's inviting enough that you feel compelled to move out of your comfort zone a little bit that you feel compelled to take that jump and take that leap. So I totally agree with you. One of the reasons that storytelling is so powerful is that it is inherently vulnerable. We talk a lot about stakes in storytelling, as you know, Joe. You know, I love to talk about stakes and workshop spaces. Stakes meaning, why is this story important? What do you have to win or to lose? The brilliant thing about the art form of true stories told live is that there are stakes inherent to that process. As soon as I stand up in front of you at a microphone in front of a crowd, as myself, I mean, that the vulnerability of that already embeds some stakes. I agree. Any, any story told live is vulnerable and it's a gift. It's an offering. It's a sharing. And there's something so powerful about the way that an audience will receive that in a way that feels different to me than a lecture or a TED talk or a presentation or a pitch. And that's where the magic is. And that's also why we have to approach the work with such care. Tell me the difference between telling a story on like a stage, like on Mm -hmm. the moth stage versus for a nonprofit where you're telling it in a group to Mm -hmm. get people engaged in advocacy or in an activity? Yeah. One question that we don't need to ask if you're on, say, a moth stage or any storytelling stage, because there's so many incredible storytelling organizations out there. The position of the audience is very clear. They're here to be entertained. There's something wonderful about that. And then there's also an edge to be careful about that. That's a story for another time. But I want to be very careful with my storytellers in workshop spaces that we're careful not to take folks who are storying for a certain reason and throw them on a stage for everybody's entertainment value, because that's not always the intention of the storyteller to be a form of entertainment. But but there's something really lovely about that. We know why that audience is sitting there and their stakes are just, they want to witness you. They're here to like connect with you and have a good time. So that stance can be really welcoming as well. When it comes to how we tell stories in nonprofit spaces, or even in as a testimony, right? Even legal spaces. I work a lot with lawyers, for example, where the outcome of this story can be, if not life or death, certainly have deep impacts on the rest of a person's life. In those spaces, The first question we need to ask, and a question I ask with clients all the time, is instead of starting with the story, you start with the impact, with the audience. If if this story goes really well, what's what's the impact? What's the call to action? What's the takeaway? We'll sometimes even envision, instead of like a sentence of what an audience might take away or a listener might take away, like an actual action. If this this story goes really well, this person will X, Y, Z. And then you got to start from there. I, I sometimes call it spell casting. And so are we telling a story around a campfire or are we casting a spell, right? It could be the same art form, but 
We can be very specific about the impact we're trying to have, and then we work back from there. And what's interesting about working back from there is you'll immediately see how the arc needs to change or how the arc needs to shift in order to create the ending. You know, on a moth stage, the ending is your last line, right? And it's fabulous, and you're going to get this amazing applause, and who knows, we might hear in the radio, you know, good on you. If you're in a courtroom, right, you don't actually get the last line, do you? You You don't get to end the story. So working back from the impact that we want to have is a way that I really differentiate those spaces. That's great. Mm -hmm. We're talking about call to actions, which we love to talk about call to actions. How do you then incorporate these stories with powerful calls to action into a movement? Oh my gosh. I mean, y'all are the expert on that. (laughs) I think very much so. I I mean, I I am, but I like to hear other folks talk about it too, but yes. That's what, that's your magic, Joe. Oh my goodness. I mean, I feel a little bit like of the Luddite in this, you know, I feel like, no, please, please. What I'll tell you is like in going through sort of your training and doing that, what it does is it brings life to a movement, right? It brings actual impact and people to that, like, again, Again, now I feel like I'm just asking questions and answering my own, which is not what I should be doing. But the idea that a story can take a fact or a problem and bring an actual face to that problem is what's so powerful for me. I absolutely agree. When a teller is standing in front of you sharing, it's impossible to be in denial about the dehumanization that's occurring. Gosh, it pains me with all that's going on in our country. It like pains me to even start talking about this, um, what's happening to trans youth and queer youth. And I don't love the idea that we have to put, you know, victims on display in order to make change. That's hard. That's, that's like a thing I wrestle with. And yeah, the way we incorporate story into movement is we, and it's not just putting a face to an issue, which it absolutely does, but it creates relationship because by, by witnessing somebody's story, you are in relationship to them. And that interrelationality, I think, is the key. Because the thing about story is that when you hear somebody, and we say this a lot in workshop spaces, specificity. We talk a lot about the difference between saying something general. Oh my gosh, this is an old, (laughs) among math facilitators, we use this a lot. This is an old, old tale. But apparently one time in a workshop space, somebody said, my grandma was mean. And then um, the facilitator said, okay, but we love specificity. How mean? In what way was your grandmother mean? And this person said, well, my grandmother said, if I worked in the shop all year, I could get this toy I really wanted. And so I worked in the plant shop all year and Christmas came and the package was under the tree and I opened it up and inside the box was all the broken pieces of pottery that I had broken over a year's worth of work in the plant shop. And every time you tell the little anecdote, everyone's jaw just drops. The difference between my grandmother was mean and the plant shop anecdote, you just feel it, right? I mean, that's what specificity does. And what's interesting is when you bring someone into your experience specifically, even if you don't have a mean grandma, even if if your grandma's the nicest lady in the whole world, you're connecting to this human being, not only through what's equivalent in your experience, but through the distinction as well, through what's different. And I think that's the key. I think when we're honest about what we experience, that the person that we're listening is just through our wiring, we're connecting to what they've gone through, even if we haven't gone through the same thing. And I think that's the stance that storytelling allows. So it's the relationship that it builds. It's not, it it is that we humanize things that otherwise might just be numbers and facts and, 
faceless. But I think what's more important and what's true about live storytelling is that it allows for this space of relationship because the act of listening to someone else's story is already putting you in relationship to them in some way. I think that's where the power is. Yeah. And so in then telling that story, what are some communication and audience connection tips that you would give to folks to, to then connect as you tell those stories? Yes. So I do a lot of storytelling work, obviously. (laughs) <laughs> I also teach a public speaking and presentation workshops and have clients, you know, with all kinds of, of, of presentations. And there are a few things that I've, I've noticed it works a lot. And what it is, is it's exactly this idea of relationship to the audience. Anything you can do to subtly call attention to this relationship can do something to the amount of connection that you're cultivating in the room. I'll give a really specific example. When folks are giving a pitch or a presentation to a room of folks that they have particular relationships with, maybe somebody in the room helped them on this presentation. Maybe somebody in the room gave a presentation that's going to connect in some way to what they're about to say. Name it. Be in relationship to one specific person in the room. I say, I say name it and frame it a lot because when we see each other in relationship that also brings us in. That's why we co-facilitate a lot in my work is because it feels very different in the room if I'm talking at you, right? And it's just me giving the content, here we go. Versus if you're watching my relationship with another another person and watching the flow between us. So anytime you can cultivate that kind of connection and now you'll see it everywhere, right? Like one piece I use a lot is like the most watched TED talk of all time. Do you know which one it is? Anybody? Anybody? <laughs> it's Sir Ken Robinson. Okay. Um, yeah, Sir Ken Robinson, who passed a few years ago. And he's done a couple TED Talks. I think his first one is the one that's the most watched of all time. It's about creativity and education. But you'll notice um, when he comes on stage, the first thing he does, he starts to talk to the audience about the day they've had together. And he references a couple of their presentations. And what he's doing is he's cultivating this give and take so that it can feel like a conversation in which one person is speaking. Because that's when you have your listener really in your flow and in the palm of your hand is when, and we've all had that feeling, right? When we're listening to somebody speak and it feels like we're in conversation, even though we're not doing any of the talking, that's what you want to cultivate, that relationship. So one thing, again, I'll say is if there's someone in the room that you can nod to, to bring Ursula, Kayla Gwen back into the the conversation since we started there, I went down a deep rabbit hole once of all of her readings, all of her public readings. And she does this funny thing where she'll get up and she'll name something about the lighting or the microphone, or the weather, or anything at all to kind of disrupt that fourth wall feeling that she's on display and create a living, breathing relationship with others in the room. You know what I mean? Like I've I've seen her talk about the volume. Can you turn it up? Can you turn it down? It's like, she totally went over that before she got up there. She's doing something with that. And I think she's calling us into the moment and calling us to be in relation to her as a human, not as a performance, not as a reading. That's one. Another thing when it comes to kind of tips for telling stories in a room, presentations in a room, this one's a rather low hanging fruit, but I think it can't be said enough. And it gives folks so much confidence. It really gives you that extra chutzpah you need. Memorize your first line and your last line. Know it in your sleep. You know, we've talked about this a lot, Joe, but I I can't say enough because when you get nervous, you need something to ground you. So you want to be really confident about the very first thing you want to say. You want to be really confident about the very last thing you say. So that even if it 
gets kind of wonky in the middle there and, and you're, and you're riding a different, you know, wave than you thought you would, you know, exactly how to root down at the end. So those are the two make relationships where you can to ground people in the moment and to be seen as a human being with relationships in the room and know exactly how you're starting and how you're ending. All right. So if folks want to read and learn more, right, yes. what are some of your favorite books, podcasts, yes, 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 yes. Uh, TV shows, movies that Great. you think incorporate storytelling? Okay. So I'll start with books. Uh, the Moth just published a book called How to Tell a Story. Just came out. Um, I have that book. Crown Publishing. I would definitely recommend that one, particularly for the kind of storytelling that you and I have been discussing. There's a lot of practical tips. And I love that it's very crowdsourced. You'll hear from a lot of different storytellers and story editors, creators, directors. So definitely that for kind of the practical and the communal. I would definitely also recommend Pen America's The Sentences That Create Us, Crafting a Writer's Life in Prison. It, I think, is a really brilliant piece. And again, very much crowdsourced. Most of the writers are just as involved themselves or impacted directly by the criminal legal system. It covers so much about kind of any storytelling form you can imagine. Writing plays, memoirs, nonfiction, fiction. And then, of course, at the heart of all of it is this idea that stories are what make us human and that stories can keep us connected to our humanity in the worst of circumstances and that a practice of storytelling in community or in isolation can be so life-affirming and life-saving. You know, we talk a lot about showing rather than telling. And I think what this book shows as much as what it tells about the power of storytelling is, is great. And I also am one of the 40 or so people who got to be featured in it. So I, <laughs> I was honestly just so honored to be involved in not so much my piece, but reading the other pieces that folks wrote in that book. I, I can't recommend enough. So that's called The Sentences That Create Us by Pen America, edited by Kate Meissner. And then if you want to get really dorky, for me, I cannot recommend highly enough A Swim in a Pond in the Rain by George Saunders. I don't know if you've read this one, Joe. Have you? I have not read this one. Oh my gosh. I, the other, yeah, okay. It's fabulous. So A Swim in the Pond in the Rain is essentially a book that captures decades of this course that George Saunders taught at Syracuse for the MFA program. And it just is a deep, deep dive, a masterclass really on, they say writing, reading, and life. But what they're using is, is Russian, is short stories from the Russian greats. Chekhov, Tolstoy, Gogol, Turgenev, I mean, and probably a few more opening the stories up sentence by sentence, breath by breath. There is just so much passion and knowledge in this book about how story works and the mystery of it, as well as like the technical prowess that you need. So I would definitely recommend that if you want to go get a little literary and dorky. And yeah, I think I'll stop there for books. Awesome. All right, great. Podcast or movies? Since oh we're gosh. deep in? Well, for podcasts, besides... The story to, you know, I always recommend The Moth to folks if you want to listen to stories and be nourished by stories. And if you want to think about storytelling as it relates to campaigns and making narrative change, I would definitely recommend Words to Win By with Anachankar Sorio. It's awesome. It goes into all of these different campaigns all over the world that were successful, that won. And like, what worked? What stories were the right ones and what were the wrong ones and why. And I found that unendingly fascinating. So that's definitely a podcast I would check out. Yeah. So 
Casey, thank you so much for being on the show. We so appreciate it. We appreciate your time. And then if folks want to get a hold of you, how do they get a hold of you? I would direct folks to my website, sayitlikeyou.com. Sayitlikeyou.com. And you can get in touch through the website there. And I'd love to hear from folks. Great. Well, Casey Donahue, thanks so much for being on the show. Joe, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And we're back. Casey has a great grasp on storytelling. Joe, what are some of the main points you want to call out about the interview? Well, so first of all, I met Casey through a community storytelling project that she worked on through the Moth Community Education Program. But Casey has a ton of storytelling experience, both through her personal consulting work that she does, as well as through her work with The Moth. But again, we were doing this program with Homes Not Borders, and she spent a ton of time working with you know recent immigrants to the U.S. on telling stories, and it was fantastic. And so that's how I met her. And she really works with folks to get the most out of their stories. And one of the things that she taught me was that storytelling itself can be much more impactful than a pile of data. That story is an emotional and connective in a way that sometimes data just cannot be. Stories are dynamic and they show a journey, they show change, and that really is powerful. And that telling a story is inherently vulnerability. It is inherently vulnerable and showing that vulnerability is really powerful. And when you utilize storytelling for advocacy work or political work, right, you also want to remember is that you're using it as a tool to move folks to action. And so I don't want folks to forget, again, we're not telling stories for the sake of telling stories, although having a good story is super helpful, but you're telling parts of the story that really help connect the dots for your listener to move them to action, right? So very often that looks like you thinking through what is the collective challenge that we're all facing, right? How does this impact more than just me, an individual human? How are you laying out a really clear choice for folks of here's the great things that will happen if we take action, here's the doom and gloom that will happen if we don't take action, right? And then leading them to a very specific and urgent call to action. Is that voting? Is that calling their legislator? Is that passing a piece of policy, right? Is that showing up and joining a cause or a movement, attending a rally, right? Whatever it may be. But you want to remember that you're creating the story and you're telling the story to really move folks to action. In a movement, what that looks like is telling that story to get more people involved in your movement, right? The more hands we have, the more impact we're going to make. And so you really want to use that to create that relationship with your audience by painting that picture and really bringing them in. Referencing someone who's in the room, the lighting, the weather, et cetera, is really going to help hone that into the folks you're really talking to that are right in front of you and bring them into the story with you. But storytelling can also prevent burnout by fostering really deep connections, right? We often talk about self-care and we talk about building relationships and how those are key in all of the work that we're doing. That vulnerability that Joe's talking about is like 
super glue when it comes to creating emotional connections between folks, right? When we are working day in and day out on some really tough issues like immigration reform and LGBTQ rights when we're under attack, gun violence prevention spaces, there's a lot of emotion innately in in those arenas. And so utilizing this in a productive and empowering way can really help build those connections that's going to allow for folks to want to continue to do this work while also feeling like they're building community along the way. And it takes time. You're not going to build a storytelling program instantaneously. You're going to need training. You're going to need volunteers that help build it. You're going to need to build a process within your organization to collect and keep these stories and keep them fresh and alive. But if you take the time to do it, it will really, really help your movement, help that connection, help that growth, because hearing those stories really just fosters and builds that movement. As you said, Martine, the emotion is the super glue, but it's also rocket fuel for a movement to get people to understand once people come together, it can really empower and move it. Again, really great to have Casey on the show. She is an expert. So thank you again, Casey, for being on. I will also say, if you haven't read The Moth's book on storytelling, it is fantastic. Go out and buy it, but it's a great book. That's it. Thanks so much for tuning into today's episode. If you have questions or comments about storytelling, check out our website, thecampaignworkshop.com. We got a lot of info there. We also talk about storytelling on our advocacy training. You can check that out at tcwadvocacy.com. And again, more information can be found in the episode description. Yep. And like always, be sure to like, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for next week's episode on movement building through fundraising. Until next time, this is Martin Diego Garcia and Joe Fold breaking down how to win a campaign. And be sure to stay tuned for next week's episode as we continue to talk about movement building. How to win a campaign is Joe Fold, Martin Diego Garcia, Elizabeth Rowe, Phoebe Retta, Evan Wilkerson, and Vienna O'Brien. Music by Daniel Pinto. Audio editing by Christopher Lang. Special thanks to the team at the Campaign Workshop. Please review, like, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.